0: Episode 88, The Best of 2023. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Well friends, we made it. 2023 has had its share of joys and challenges, both individually and collectively. But here we are, together in community. This special edition of the podcast is our final episode of the year, and you are in for a treat. Not only will you hear from me, but you will get to hear from six IBI team members in their own words as they introduce a snippet from their favorite episode of 2023. We begin with a conversation from choreographer and director Camille A. Brown, followed by former Minister of Culture of the Black Panther Party, Emery Douglas. Up next will be choreographer and producer, George Faison. And then we chat with South African director and writer, Melissa Tondo Bongela. Next, we'll hear from producer, writer, and actress, Lena Waithe, followed by photographer and artist, Andre D. Wagner. And then finally, we conclude with dancer, choreographer, and artistic director, Robert Battle. Full episode links will be in the show notes. And what about you? Share some of your favorite episodes with us and how they spoke to you over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And Do you have any suggestions for any upcoming guests or topics? Be sure to sign up for our newsletter and click our community link. We'd love to hear from you. Now, without further ado, we'd like to dedicate today's conversation to you, the listener. And thank you for being a part of the Institute of Black Imagination.
1: Hey, y'all. My name is Kaniqua Johnson-Reed. I am my development officer here at IBI. This year, episode 59 for Colored Girls with Camille A. Brown really spoke to me. I really loved how she spoke about the power and trusting your timing, and I was really inspired by how she's been able to find strength in uplifting her own voice through choreography and dance. It's a really special episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Like, I, you know, I did have some... Uh, some body issues where I was on a diet in high school and all that stuff and I just thought, okay, now I'm moving to a different environment. It's going to be different. I'm going to... And it was the same thing. I got called into the office. I was asked to get uh, put on a diet and it was the struggle. I was told I wasn't going to fit the costumes. I wasn't even called to audition for things. You know, Um, and at the first time... I got there. I mean, I got there, you know, the top of school and I was ready to transfer because I was like, this is not this is not the experience that I wanted. And my mom said, you know, no problem having a conversation about you transferring, but wait till the semester's over and then we can talk about it. And she said, in the meantime, find something that helps you get through each day. And before Mm. that, I had my composition improv classes, and I really didn't. I really didn't understand them uh, because I was always conditioned. When the choreographer comes in, you sh- they show the material and you do the material. But this was when, um, and Trish Casey was my first composition improv teacher. This was the first time when someone was actually asking me to create from my thoughts and my point of view, and. Mm. I was like, wow, I don't get this. And I rejected it at first. But it wasn't until my mom had me start thinking about, well, what are the things that you can claim for yourself that composition and choreography became like this whole other thing? So my first year when other people were chosen for um, uh, to work with choreographers, I would go and find an empty studio and just work on, on my own voice and my own self and um, throughout college, I mean, I, I eventually just stay, stayed at uh, NCSA and worked through that. And I, and I definitely had support with choreography and, and my body started changing. I started... Uh, Getting asked to chore excuse me, asked to audition for things and, and being accepted and being able to work with these amazing choreographers. But the thing that was the takeaway for me was that even though regardless of whether or not I was or was not chosen, I always had my work to go back to and my work mm. to heal. If I wasn't chosen, I could go back to my work to heal. If I was chosen, I could go back to my work to celebrate. There was always something to go back to.
0: Mm, I love that. And, and just for, for listeners, um, you're talking about the University of North Carolina School of, of the, the Arts. Art, yes. Um, and so what were some of those things that you discovered, right? That what, you know, your mother said to, to claim parts of yourself, what were some of those parts that you discovered?
1: Yeah, well, I
0: choreography? think,
1: sorry, um, I think I had to do a lot of stripping because uh, fast forward, I was um, uh, went into I was asked by Ronald K. Brown to join his company after college. And I wasn't I thought choreography was something that was going to get me through school. And it did. And then once I got into Ron's company, uh, the first year I was there, I said, OK, focus on your work, the, the his work and Immerse yourself in that. And I love dancing for evidence. And I loved Ron's movement. And then uh, this was before the Internet and all the text messages and all this stuff. I got a I got a letter from a friend that I went to college with. And it was for the Hubbard Street 2 competition. And she said, I think you should do it. And I was so moved because I hadn't heard from her in a year. And I wasn't really, like, focusing on choreography at that point. But I was like, wow, she really took the time to put this, the you know, send me a a, a, email, a letter. And so, you know, I put whatever I put together for my um college, like, solo. And I think I had a group work. And I put it in and submitted it. And that was—and I got it. And that was the wow. start of— me thinking oh maybe this is an opportunity for me to work w- inside of a company but also create my own work and i would challenge myself to because i i i we are all influenced by people you know we we're inspired mm-hmm. and, and you see things and mm-hmm. you go wow that's a lovely way of moving or that's a lovely way of singing like what, what, what about that? How, how can that inspire me? But I didn't want my influences to overshadow my voice. So I would give myself an assignment and say, as I started choreographing, um, I, I would give, I would, ta- I would challenge myself to say, okay, Camille, sit down and don't get up unless you have an idea that is you. If you think it's someone else and you've seen it or you've done it yourself within someone else's choreography, don't do it. And there was one rehearsal that I had with myself that I didn't get up the entire time because every time I got up, I was like, nope, that's someone else. Nope. I've seen that. Nope. You know, so I you never let go of your influences. And I didn't want to let go of them, but. What was going to be at the forefront? Were they going to be other people's voices and other people's style? Or was was it going to be my style and my choices? And so I had to work through that.
0: Mm, mm, how long was that process?
1: Uh I think it took or Is it
0: still ongoing?
1: <laughs> no, I think I'm I'm at a place now where I know this is my language and I know the entry point where I go. But it did take mm. uh some years. I mean I graduated in two thousand one, uh and it took it took some time. I think maybe Around 2010, I was like, OK, I'm kind of feeling where I, where I fit into this or where I what what kind of work I want to make. It was kind of around mm-hmm. that point. And I can see mm. if I look at a lot of my works and the earlier works, I can totally see where it's like, oh, my gosh, that is totally such a such, That's totally. so." But, you know, <laughs> you have to continue. That's how that's how you get to your is that you have. Opportunities, And the more opportunities and the more you challenge yourself, then every time you're going to get closer to who you are to the point where you get and you go, OK, I've landed. Um, the challenge mm. for me within that while I was creating was I didn't necessarily think I was going to get a lot of opportunities because uh, the people as I was growing up, the people that uh, I was told or we were told as a class to get in their companies or take a look at them and, you know, make sure that when you audition, you go out for these people, we're all men. So me, as a Black female choreographer, I was sitting there like, I don't know what my chances are going to be. And so just how writers, Mm. and this is what I was thinking earlier on, just how female writers used to give themselves aliases, I thought about giving myself an alias, too. But, uh the other thing about it is, yeah, they're writing, you're dancing, they're going to see who you are. So <laughs> I said, okay, y'all going to see who I am. And I just made the decision, okay, there are going to be challenges. You may have to work 20 times as hard. You know that going mm. in.
0: Mm. <clears throat> mm, mm, mm. Who was the first person... Who really saw you? Or when was the first time you felt seen? That's the better question. When was Ooh. the first time you felt seen?
1: Well, one one moment comes to mind, and it was Earl Mosley, and I was at the Ailey School. And at that time, people uh, were actually able to sit on these um, stools and watch the class. The door would be open, you would watch the class— and I just saw this guy and he was sitting there and I noticed that he was watching me the entire time. And after after the class, he went up to me and he said, uh, and I have to paraphrase because I was like 14 or something. And uh, he said, you know, you have, you have a lot going for you. Just continue to take like your technique classes and work. And uh, eventually I think that next year, our class had him for repertory and he gave me a solo, which I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing, wonderful mm. to have this opportunity to be an individual and to to have this space, to, t- to take up this space and to take up this time. Um, you know, I definitely, there were moments before that where I felt seen, but that, moment is coming up for me today because that Mm -hmm. was important because I felt you know Ailey is Ailey you hear the you hear and you go that's the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater so inside of that as a 13 14 year old inside of the school and for someone to reach out to you in the in the midst of like you know 40 30 40 kids in a class and for them mm. to say, hey, you have something, keep going, uh, to me, that was like monumental.
0: Hello, hello. I'm River Wildman. I'm a designer and artist, and the one who was behind the graphic design and creative production here at the Institute. From the 2023 year, episode 86, Sketching a Revolution with Emery Douglas is one of my favorite episodes. So designers and visual artists listening out there make some space to take it all in and leave some room for more, as this episode in particular is a special one. We get to hear from an OG, an elder, who has both been a part of and existed in a world that has gone through immense change. He holds immense knowledge and shares that with us through stories of historical movements, personal experiences, and creative processes. I hope you enjoy listening to Emory Douglas, an artist that continues to create an undying legacy for an undying cause. Wow, wow. So you're, you know, things do not happen in vacuums, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of take us back to this time, and then I want to bring us back present. Like, there are multiple social movements that are happening around the world at Mm -hmm. this time, and some that had happened prior to. And so, some of these posters that you're speaking about are actually... It sounds like from other social movements that were happening around the world. But then yes. also th- knowing that the Black Panther Party was very much inspired by, you know general Mao, um Mao Zedong. And then also it sounds like some of like this kind of Russian constructivism that was mm. coming out um, mm. from uh, Eastern Europe, right? Mm. And those posters and the ways yeah. in which they were using this language mm. and this mm. graphic element mm. to really. Push social agendas forward, and then mm-hmm. your, and then you kind of push that through your own experience, you mm-hmm. know, in San Francisco, and with these revolutionary ideas into a visual language mm-hmm. that then could com- be communicated to the very people that you were trying to reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. you being inspired by it means you're being inspired with, but not necessarily duplicating. But to be inspired by it is being be inspired with. And as I evolved, I begin to be able to communicate, articulate it beyond just the visual. Artists can have a knowing and be able to reflect it in the art, but at the same time, that's from a deeper inspirational spirit perspective. But then develop the skills of communicating it as well. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah. One might come with the other, or it might come to, we might have it, I might have it at the same time. Or I might have a deeper knowing what I'm doing, and be able to articulate it as as at a later date. <laughs> Maybe not right then, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I want to I want to come back to that because I love this idea of being in spirit with. But you know, I I do, I do want to take advantage of the ability to be in 2023. Mm-hmm. With an individual who not only lived this movement, right? You were at the beginning of it, but that movement had certain goals um, for black life. It had a certain vision for black life. And now here in 2023, in what ways do you feel that some of those were achieved and the way in what ways do you feel we still have, some room to grow?
2: Well, I think it achieved in the sense of uh, uh, overcoming the obstacles of colonization of the imagination in many ways, that, that people are resisting that, you know, as artists and creative folks, you know, in many ways. More so than in historical past, you could say, uh, on a broader scale context, you know. Uh, I I see it in that context. I think that um, you have more young black and people of color who are referencing the the work, who are are, uh, writing and discussing those works that when people read it, people of color and people black people read it, it's coming from where they can, they know it's coming from them, from this, from that spirit, you know. So that's a whole another dynamics, you know. In, in a way, you know, because we we've had that, but it also always had came from. Uh, uh, but to now you, it, once you got more young black people in these institutions, and and and, and developing the context for dealing with those issues, you, you know, it's, it makes it uh, a humongous impact today. It can't, you know, in many ways. Yeah.
0: And what and what and what do you feel may be some spaces that still require some improvement, some hopes that you all had that still have yet to be achieved?
2: Well, it's it's not about being the first. It's about it's about fairness and equality. It, you know, you, you know, you she for, for being the first is a personal achievement, you know. Being in this that's all these things are personal achievement, but you want transition, you want change. You want real change, you know. And we see, you uh, see that, that's, that's an incremental thing that hap- may happening, but in the context of things still staying the same, you see. Uh, but so we have, to, we have to have alternative institutions to this in some kind of way uh, to begin to sh- lead it by example, to explain it so people can visually see that this is something that can help the collective spirit of everyone you know not just a putting up a uh, uh you know somebody having a foundation you know that's fine but we need more than just foundations you know we need we need we need to we need, we got to figure out how we how to, to for how to maintain foundations how to sustain foundations From, you know you have to have division and and that means having access to the technology, of developing the technology. And we got the skills. And anyway, we ain't got the skills. However else, can they over in Cuba, we got 20, 1930 cars and it's still running. <laughs> you know what I mean? Same thing in Africa. Although, you know, third, wherever, you know, they, they develop with, I mean, all kinds of inventions that could be relevant to Coming, you know, if the vision was there to see them I in mean, the context of, the, of, of helping solve the problem, things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It's a daily basis thing, quality of life issues. It's very important. Very basic stuff is very important.
0: Yeah. You mentioned something that I didn't quite, I think, consider as a goal of the Black Panther Party, which was the decolonization of one's imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and that's
2: the ability. That, that, yeah, that's everything. That's all of it. Yeah. You can say that's the way everything. Resistance. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: How would you the define... The language you talk about, oh, Yeah, no. How would how would you define Black imagination?
2: Well, uh, well Black imagination would be that it's coming from a black perspective. Which is uh, well, it, well, I mean, <laughs> which is from black people, people of color. Yeah. Contributing to the <laughs> to, to the narrative. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean I mean that's that's I that's what I would say, you know, maybe somebody else could inform me and enlighten me more. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well the reason you know, I'm 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 being a little here, I mean, this is the Institute of Black mm-hmm. Imagination, um, and so you know, for us, you and know, here, Black Imagination
2: instit- is, is not, is not. I don't think, would say Black Imagination would become from uh, Black context, but not necessarily, and it, it, it speaks. It can be speak exclusively to about Black people, but it's one that can be informing and educating to a broader audience in that context as well yeah
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean it's I not think
2: isolation i wouldn't say it to be isolation you know what i mean if you do that you know you'd be the same thing as today you know it's got to be human have a human quality to it
4: hi everyone tiffany brown knight here i had operations and legal at ibi I have selected episode 82 with the legendary George Faison dancing through the archives. I really love this episode, even as someone who is not in the world of dance, there were so many takeaways, specifically um, how you work with a team without sacrificing your personal identity, how to continue to challenge yourself even after you think you've done it all, And lastly, just some real, real facts about the road to Emerald City, both figuratively and literally, uh, the bumps that come when you're really uh, reaching for the stars. So thank you so much, uh, Mr. Faison, for a remarkable episode. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. I had done so much.
5: Uh, So I had that experience. You know, I had been in the chorus. With Pearlie, I had been on stage, choreographed uh, fashion shows, and and uh, just like a lo- a lot of things, and danced with Norma Miller, who was who was a great. She did she does that dance in Hells of Popping with that with that hat. They do a Lindy with Frankie Manning. Probably they were the two greatest. Uh, Lindy Hop dancers in the world. And they they had a, com- a company. And then I went out with her when uh, uh, to some of those uh, white clubs, that, uh, Jewish clubs that were out there on Northern Boulevard, that line Northern Boulevard, and they would have black entertainers come that would sing and do all of those things. And she was one of those acts from the 40s and so forth. Mama Lou Parks, all of them, I did all of it. All of it. I danced with all of it. The change in the bathroom, ran on stage. This was even, uh, was that even after Ailey? I think. now, Now, that may have been after. No, that was before Ailey. Yeah. All of that. You know, it's so much of our history. And those people were from the third 20s, 30s, and 40s, but they were great. They taught.
0: They taught me so much. And so how did you take all of that? I mean, you know, this opportunity comes up to choreograph the a weeks. Broadway, right? And but it's also w- very also very interesting, George, because you know they're doing the revival right now on Broadway, and we can come back to that. But, like, for you as a young man with all of this experience and you're given this opportunity, how did you approach it? How did you feel? Like, what was that experience? That what is did the you- secret. That oh, is the secret, and this is what we're here to find out. <laughs> Give us the secret, George.
5: You know, Judy Garland belongs to all of us. I don't care what they try to say, because some <laughs> people, when we first tackled the whiz, tried to say, "Why are y'all doing the whiz? What are you doing the whiz?" Do because Judy Garland entertained us from 1938. That's what you watched, okay, and so forth, and it was magical, and it was. You know, uh, it was television. It was TV, and and it was everything American and all of that. That's what we grew up with. But when I I uh, took on the whiz, it was like, can I do that? Well, first of all, I was in Delacorte Theater, which you know is in Central Park, and we would do. We finished Otis with try a little tenderness. And at the end of that that program, the audience wouldn't sit down. And that and over the loudspeaker they had to ask the audience, please leave. We'd cause near a riot. They and and Clive Barnes wrote everything, you know, in in the New York Times about it. So it was really great. And and as I was as as the We were leaving. A man came up to me and introduced himself as Ken Harper, who was the producer of The Wiz. And he came along with Andre DeShield, who was a performer down on the Lower East Side with uh, Tom O'Horgan, who did, uh, you know, I think he did hair or something. Yes, he did hair, he directed. Hey, a Tomahawk again. And he was, they were off Broadway, these freaks, you know, they were out. Um, you know, and, and that Lori Eastside was another revelation. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, he came up to me and introduced himself and asked me, told me that he was doing a, a musical uh, based on The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and I said, really? I said, that sounds great. When are you going to do it? He, and he said, well, as soon as I raise all the money, I'm going to do it. But how many propositions do you hear like that? And so I would meet with, I met with him for about, I came back and he would explain a little a bit about it. And he'd play a song that he had this guy, Charlie Smalls was collaborating and writing the music. And I, I met with him for maybe about a year and, uh, and, uh, I said, no, that night I told him, well, when you get the money, you, you know, he says, I had to have to raise the money said, When you get the money, call me, because I was really excited about it. And I think a year passed and he called me. I got the money and uh, we want to uh, have auditions and we're going to uh, start in 74, the fall of 74. Or, and uh, and and he kept his promise and and all of that. Um, unfortunately, he didn't tell Jeffrey the day that we opened uh, that we started rehearsal. He unfortunately forgot to tell Jeffrey that I was going to be the choreographer. George Faison, one of the dancers who had danced in one of his ballets while I was still in Ailey. So you talk about moving on, I had to move on. (laughs) So it was like, I left Ailey in 70 and all that time I had been working, 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 working. So in 74, he got the money and the first day of rehearsal, he introduced me as the choreographer. Jeffrey was furious. He... Left the rehearsal, and uh, and because Ken forgot to tell me, tell him I guess that he wasn't directing either, and Gilbert Moses was directing, and uh, that's how, that was our first day of rehearsal, uh, and Jeffrey you know walked out and we didn't see him until Baltimore where all the costumes arrived and and so forth. But I'm sure he was pissed with that, but that was the story. And the next six weeks was hell. You know, oh, oh, my battery um, was hell. And uh, and it was a a six-week journey back to Broadway. Until we opened on Broadway, Jeffrey was then called back as the director when uh, Gilbert and Charlie Smalls got into an altercation in a Baltimore bar, and and he had to leave. But and Stu Gilliam, who was playing the Scarecrow, decided he wasn't coming back to rehearsal. So we grabbed Hinton Battle, who was in the chorus, my dance chorus. Uh, was snatched out of the chorus and went on as the scarecrow 20th Century Fox. Ken Harper fainted. And I mean, it was just like he was out of it. And we went on with Hinton that noon, that matinee in front of 20th Century Fox and to get more money and so forth. And thank God we put those two young people together, Stephanie Mills and Hinton Battle, because they were absolute magic. And they fell in love with them. And uh, that was one leg of our trip. Detroit was another. And Philadelphia was yet another until we opened on Broadway in January 5th, 1970. What is that? Seventy-five. So our 50th anniversary is coming up in 2025. Wow. So whoever's doing the whiz and what they're reimagining it as, I wish them well. But first, you're going to have to survive the road. The road is no joke. The road to, the, to Emerald City is pra- paved with heartache. Heartache, you know, sprained ankles, firings, uh, all, everything in that potholes, everything <coughs> that you can, can imagine. <laughs> but we made it, and we won seven Tony Awards. So, you, perseverance, and all of those things that I learned, all of that way, were the things that helped me. So it was 10 years after I came to New York that I went to Tony. All of that experience through Alvin Ailey, through all of, through all of, all of that, through everything that I had done, made me ready for that moment. And so, so forth. So that was... Uh, unimaginable success and, and freedom. And then, and then you're still, and then even after you get those papers, you know, it's, it's, it's another journey after that. I was, I was 27 years old. So it was like, um, at that time, so it was like, the world was open to me. And then, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Asher and Simpson, and uh, all of those other people that I've done Porgy and Best. I got a Tony nomination for that in '82, uh, and uh, on and on.
0: Yeah, you know i i want to I want to go forward, but I, brother, I actually, <laughs> talk. What, I know. What, maybe no, no have, because but, no, because. Because I have, I have to hear about Maybe you can the bring Emerald me back. City. But I need to hear about the Emerald City sequence. But that's so much detail. I don't need. Oh no, I don't need. I don't need wanna- like Tandu Padubure. Like the like the visioning of this. I mean, this is this is my childhood, brother. This is yes. legendary. Oh, you're right. You're right? right. You're like Red, green, right. gold. You've got to be seen. Green, like. Like, those moves, like, just, you know, give me the cliff notes. I just, you're here. We that was later, but
5: I had gone to uh, Charlie Smalls because the music uh, uh, for Emerald City was more like a dirge. And I said I needed something sparkling and something wonderful. And that, and, uh, well, they did not use that in the movie, but I'm still I'm still collecting royalties on that, but gag, uh, yes, gag, because we wrote that <laughs> song, and we will forever be embedded in the Whiz because of the music side. So even though the dances, the steps, the, all of that are not there, I will always be there. <laughs> <So>. Provenance, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> Thank
5: you. Okay, so you'll see my name on the on and. On Broadway, even, <laughs> as it comes back. So that, um, so um, uh, the Emerald City, we always wanted an Emerald City. We never looked like that. I had seen all the Busby Berkeley. I had done all that. I'd envy all of that. I love Fred Astaire and all of it. I had not seen us.
0: Hey everyone, my name is Kyle. I currently work in the archives here at IBI. This year, episode 66, Inside Apartheid's Wish, spoke to me because Millie speaks to the necessity of love and intimacy as an antidote to a violent and racist world. I hope you all enjoy.
6: I don't think apartheid gave me and gave the people who had a different experience of it in the homelands those lives, I think we gave ourselves those lives. Our parents gave ourselves those lives. Um, and even in those places of, in, in, in segregated America, people give themselves like the quality lives that they, in those spaces. Um, it's, it's not, like, I don't want to walk into this dangerous zone of being like, oh, yeah, maybe apartheid was justifiable in this particular way. I think that it is more evil and more complex than we understand. Mm. I think that the understanding is actually maybe still at 40%. We're not fully there. We understand it in material terms. We understand it in masculinist, violent terms. So we understand it in practical, tangible terms, but psychologically, uh, That is the most damaging thing, to cripple so many millions of people, indigenous people, all over the world. Spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, in all these other ways that you can't see and touch, to to break them, not just their arms, but their spirits, is far more damaging. And I feel like even in a free South Africa, where I live in a beautiful apartment and I drive a Mini Cooper and I speak this English and I'm traveling and getting on planes, what is the pain inside of me? It's not material. It's historical. It's ancestral. It's 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 intangible. It's the stuff that we can't see. And I think a lot of the times we are attracted to this notion of only needing things to express themselves materially to see how bad it is.
7: We mm. know that
6: it's bad, but I feel like it is far more complex than we understand it. The fact that this was intentionally planned—they didn't have good intentions and love when they were putting black people and lagering them into those places. This was the most unarable land. They chose the best land for themselves, and they were like, "Oh, it had no minerals. It had no wealth. So it wasn't like these plans were set up intentionally because there was a care. It came out of greed. It came out of this fundamental notion that." is anti-human, this idea of separating people. Fascism says we must be separated. We must create straight, hard, rock-solid lines and separate from each other, separate families, separate... And that's why our pain as Africans and Black people all over the world is that they separated our families. We haven't even begun to talk that much about what is the intergenerational damage of that, the fact that a lot of us have no idea what it's like to have the support of two parents and our larger, not just two parents because this nuclear parent notion is bullshit. Communities that were thriving where people were concerned with just how to be a human being and 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 seeing in a far wider way. And so like, I think that when we understand and think of apartheid only in the vile senses of the people getting shot down the street and the, the the policemen wielding guns, this is what makes white people buy into this idea that it's over. We're not doing that anymore. You guys aren't being shot at by you know water cannons and stuff, because we have only attached apartheid to this the most grotesque form of the physical expression of it, the material expression of it. No before something is material, it starts off as an idea. It starts off as a belief. And the belief is the thing that makes one build their whole life around it. The belief is the thing that ends up being a pointed gun at you if you're a Mm. black person by a policeman. And so that territory of thinking and ideology, that is far more sinister and evil. And I feel like this is where our attention should really be, this is where the healing can only happen if we go there. Because yes, we don't don't have to wear plasters because we're not getting physically grazed as much as we were a hundred years ago, but shit is still broken. People are in so much pain and to buy into this idea of the material as security or the material as the most important thing is to buy into the reasons that, made the Europeans go out into the whole planet and do this. And to, and, and to kill all the other forms of life that we know are true, you know? To attach ourselves only to this idea of our physical selves and only the things we can see and touch and prove. This is the problem. Life is far wider than that. It's far more complex. It's far more mysterious. There's, it's far bigger. And like... <sighs> I don't even think we've begun to, we're not even at 50% of understanding what, how evil about it was. Mm -hmm. But inside of that evil, the people of the trans guy, Matanzima, for instance, is always painted as like a puppet and a sellout. And yes, one could actually argue that from the outside. But when we listen to his speeches, of which I've listened to every single one of them, because I've been researching this for years... There, it wasn't a sense of, oh, we're capitulating because the white people told us. They're like, no, we are self-determining people. We want to get on with the program of living. And if it means we've got to take this shitty ticket, we'll take it. But inside of that, fortunately and unfortunately, the program of living continued. (laughs) There was living that happened as, as, as you know, and as, as you are relating to the the experience of what happens, because he says in the film, when we are, when we are put together, they don't treat us with respect. But once we are separated, they will see that we are men from another state. And of course, you know, whether this sentiment was true or not, or real or not to him, it did create something that wasn't the the typical experience of apartheid. And I don't want to play the game of saying either or of choosing, you know, whether it was good or bad. It's complex because history and life is complex. And so, The thing about the film is that I'm trying to articulate this position of being, coming from this place that I don't necessarily agree with ideologically, but that's given me so much. It's given me my life. It's given me my language. It's given me my religion. It's, 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 it's... it's, I belong somewhere, you know? I feel like this idea of belonging is like, I'm sent in that regard. And so I can't... Discard it. And it's about living in the grayness of the whole thing, right? And unpacking apartheid, not from this perspective of like arriving at the door of it and saying it's evil and that's it, or arriving at the door of the trans guy and saying this was good and that's it. It's about that. That's why it was so successful because it really, it was created by psychologists, by the way. People who conceived of apartheid was a group of psychologists in Stellenbosch, one of whom became the prime minister. And so it, it uses the quality of li- qualities of life and the, the human complexity and the complexity of, uh, of, and the abstractness of the mind and perverts that to, for the, the causes of fascism. And, and ultimately, it's, it's fundamentally and diametrically opposed to Ubuntu, is seen to the indigenous knowledge systems here that most indigenous people understand, which is that we need each other. There is no such thing as an individual. I don't, I cannot live by myself. I don't come, I don't bring myself into the world. I don't bury myself. I don't live alone. I need other people as a human child or I die, right? We have to. We need each other. We need, we are part of a complex system and we fathom as a human being, I'm, I'm, I'm fathoming myself through you right now. I can't look in the mirror and, and, and for the rest, if I were to sit and look at the mirror for the rest of my life, I would never know myself. I would never know myself. I would just see how I look, but I know myself by having a conversation with you. I know myself, another part of myself by having a conversation with my mom, another part by having a conversation with my dog or my therapist. And this is why I was saying at the beginning that my spirit and all of our spirits are infinite because we're not having the same conversation with these different people. One part of me comes out when I'm talking to my mom, another part when I'm talking to my uncle, another part when I'm talking to my partner. And this is the the, the at the heart of Ubuntu. It's not a man is a man because of another man or whatever. It's, it, it means we fathom life and existence by interpersonal conversations. Whereas the other thing, fascism and apartheid, which is what it is, says, I am an individual and I, and, I, and we must separate as much as we can. That's why intimacy is then the antidote to fascism. All fascisms, right? As it relates to queerness, as it relates to religion, as it relates to all the ways in which we are split. And so the, the way to undo that is to insist on intimacy. I don't know if I've gone off too much, but fascism is the antidote, is that the intimacy is the, is the antidote to fascism. And so that's why in our fight mm. against apartheid, we have to figure out how do we not do the work of apartheid for it? So when we say, I understand there are moments where we need to preserve ourselves and we need to separate. We need to say as black people, "Mm -mm, this is ours, this is ours, let's be alone now. But, or as women, cis women, let's be alone. Trans women, let's be alone. Because only in our own spaces can we understand how we sound and how our pain is and how our joy is. However, we cannot stay in that position. We mm-hmm. have to otherwise that's That's doing a party's work for it. It's like, oh, you wanna be alone? Great, because it, it you are you are making this idea of ours live, right? And because it's not gonna be, racism is not gonna be resolved by black people sitting alone together. Nor is it gonna be resolved by white people sitting alone together. There are times when there everybody has to be in their own group, but we have to figure out what is this very difficult center where we do have to meet. In that center, what are we saying to each other? How are we speaking? How are we breaking down the trauma? How are we breaking down the aggressions? How are we breaking down all this other stuff? And then this other desire to be together, because it's there. And this other desire for love to exist. And we are owed so much love, Dario. We are owed so much love. Mina, I don't want to say, why don't you leave me alone anymore? There was many years where I was like, leave me alone. Now I'm like, actually... At the very, 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 very bottom of this feeling of leave me alone is a cry that says, why have you not loved me back? You're supposed to love me back because I've loved you. My mother has loved you. I've, I've loved you. We've loved you for 500 years. Why do you not love me back? Mm. And, and that why doesn't come from a place of I need it because no, it's a, it's a human right to be loved. A child enters into the world and the first thing they expect is love because they deserve it. And so it's been, if it's been systemically taken away from us, our starts to say, leave us alone and we just want to do our own thing. I understand it. That's a, that's a response of like, you hurt me too much and I don't want to be around you, but it doesn't take away the need for that love because we're humans. That's why we get shocked when people treat us badly and follow us in the restaurants or in the, in the pharmacy, that's why we get shocked because that thing is a thing that's saying you're you're supposed to love me. Actually. Why aren't you loving me? But because that language or that thing is like, it seems like it's a soft language. It's not soft. It's the most profound. I'm very interested in it. I'm not good at it yet, but I'm very much drawn to this idea that, I'm, I'm done now being like, leave me alone. I'm um, now I'm like, oh, because we are also shamed when we want to go closer to them, right? We're always shamed when you want to go closer to the other that has harmed you. But that thing that lives inside you that does want to go closer, it's not something I don't, I don't want to be ashamed of it anymore. It's the natural thing because I'm here to love animals, plants, people, life. And that requires intimacy. (laughs) And we are scared of it. I'm in therapy because I'm scared of it. In my own family, in my own life, in my, I don't have a partner because I'm just like, oh my God, as soon as somebody comes close, it's too scary. They're going to leave me. They're going to hurt me. But I'm unlearning that. And of course, how our our stances against whatever the other is in our life, it mirrors, it's mirrored there by our relationships intimately. Whatever's happening in the politics outside, however we our stance to other people outside, it's going to be mirrored there in your relationship. You can't have violence and horror and hatred outside and think inside you're going to have nice love. No, it doesn't work like that.
4: Hey friends, it's KT Thompson, podcast producer and administrator at the Institute of Black Imagination episode 85 of our podcast this year, Mastering Your Story, left a lasting impact on me. In this enlightening conversation with the award-winning writer and actor Lena Waith, she provided insights particularly on self-sabotage and the transformative journey necessary for handling life's diverse stages. Her wisdom was a game changer for me. Here's a snippet, but I invite you to go and explore the other gems Lena drops throughout the entire episode. And hey, thanks for listening.
0: Of circling back like you know you've encountered a lot you exist in a lot of spaces you work mm-hmm. with a lot of people you've hired a lot of people what outside of not being able to let go of the people you need to let go of what are some of the other ways in which you see people kind of self-sabotage or why is not everyone able to ascend I mean not everyone has to become Beyonce. No. But we no. all have, you know, a purpose. What?
8: Yes. Um, that's such a good question. I think a thing, it is us. We are our own self-saboteurs. It's, it's, it's always our own doing. Yes, there are different hurdles and um, things that some of us, especially those of us who are othered in different ways, will encounter. Um, more so than other our, our counterparts that are more privileged just in, in terms of their how they were born, the families in which they were born into. But what a big thing I noticed is that the reason why I think a lot of people are afraid to capture a dream is because they have to transform. <sighs> You're no longer the same person once you've scratched something off your dream list. So what happens is sometimes people scratch that, that thing off and they're like, oh, I did that thing that I've been chasing my whole life. Okay, but now what? Or now who am I? Now, now that I've done that, I don't, now I don't know what my new purpose is. And so sometimes it becomes easier to chase a thing than to catch it. Because once you caught it, now you have to exist in it. And you have to dream another dream. You have to maintain. And, and what I've noticed, too, is that once you've done something really well, it becomes expected for you to continue to do that thing very well. And nothing and it's so funny, people always say that when there's a, a winning team that keeps winning, people begin to do what? Root against them. So that's the thing I think people are afraid of is capturing a dream, having to learn how to exist in it and to know what it feels like for people to root against you and still ascend and get better. People don't want to be rooted against I am rooted against, but I'm also rooted for. And what the peace I have to have is knowing that both our people are necessary. Those that do not wish me well, are almost just as significant to my story as those that do. How so? It gives me, it reminds me that I'm human. And it reminds me that I'm not doing this to be light. (laughs) Um, And I'm not, I don't need the naysayers to change their minds. That is not a need or a want or a desire. For me, it's about listening when God whispers. That's my job. That's really what our instincts are. So I have to, to not be worried about much else. I can't in order to exist in your purpose, you also have to really, you got to silence the noise. You got to really zone in to what you're here to do. So you don't have a lot of time or bandwidth or energy to make people think, you know, highly of you or to to, to make them accept you. (laughs) You know, I don't have the energy to do that. The work that I put out is a reflection of, who I am. It is a these are time capsules of me learning and me growing and me evolving. And when I'm gone, that work will live. The work lives even when I'm dead. When I'm gone, what are they gonna do? They're gonna run a Netflix and put on the Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> Maybe some will go watch Ready Player One. Maybe some will go watch Queen and Slam. Maybe some will go binge the shy. That's what they will have to remember me by. So, I want to make sure that those memories are accurate.
0: Mm. So, I'm going to, you know, I I got so many questions, but I just want to double tap here. You know, Mm -hmm. for yourself, right? I mean, coming from Chicago, Mm -hmm. um, you know, going to Columbia College in Chicago, um, you know, Sounds like you really knew early on what you wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an incredible, it's just phenomenal, really, to see that. But in in that process from Columbia, you know, to now, like, was there a pivotal moment, or what were those pivotal moments that forced you to realize that you had to transform?
8: Mm. I think it was in college, you know, I took a, a course in television writing, sitcom writing, <laughs> and I was taught by Michael, Mike Fry, who, he was famous at Columbia College because he had written on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, he was an intern at the Cosby Show, so we were like, he's done it, like, he's been out there in L.A., he had came back to teach us the ways, <clears throat> And so I got in his class. He only had 12 slots. I had to make sure all my payments was up to date so I could register early. <laughs> and so my mom would never know they were, I was like, y'all, I got to get in this man's class. And he's still in my life to this day, my professor. Amazing. Um, so I'm really grateful. But <clears throat> so we, we, at the end of the class, had to write a spec script. You know, that was the, over the course of the class, you write a spec script. And a spec script, for those that don't know, is is like you, you write for an existing television show. Um, you write an episode as if you're in the room, you know? And so it's a way for people to see if you can mimic the voice of a show. Cause that's really what you're doing as a television writer. You're trying to get staff on the show and you're trying to mimic the voice of whoever show it is. And so I picked Girlfriends to suspect cause that was, you know, and so he was like, okay. And so, um, I wish I could remember my A and B stories. I mean, he, he might be able to remember it, but I threw everything I had into it and, I worked really hard. I still remember a lot of the things he told me in that class. I think a big lesson I got from him was that, you know, and also I learned this too in watching Friends and just study and listening to commentaries of TV shows. In every scene, both characters have to have opposing points of view. Period. No, too. And the thing I sometimes see in movies and stuff, you see characters in scenes that agree. That is not a scene. <laughs> The with with two people are on opposite sides. One person has to st- want to stay in the room. The person has to want to leave the room. You know what I mean? And so I remember those, th- those things and just remembering that. And so at the end of the class, he said, look, when he was passing out, giving our papers back with our grades on it, our scripts, he said, I do not give A's, folks. So don't be upset if you didn't get an A on your script. That's just not what I do. Very few people get A's. It's not that kind of party in here. So before I pass these out, just just prepare your hearts, okay, for that. And so, black guy, by the way, black man with locks and everything. So I was like, all right, all right, fair, you know. But I was like, all right, I'll, you know. So I get my my script back, and it has an A on it. He Gave me an A. And I walked up to him afterward because I was saying goodbye. It was the last class, and I was like, thank you. And he and he winked at me, and he said, "Get out of here, go." Um, and he was telling me to go do the semester in LA, you know, which is something that Columbia College does for certain students where you can come spend your, a semester of college in Los Angeles on a lot. And so I did, it was a big, was a big thing. I, I, I applied for the semester in LA, I got in and that was another transformative moment. It was like him giving me that handshake, that wink, that grade. It was saying something to me of like, oh, this person that knows a lot, thinks I have something. And that's a very important part, I think, of anyone's journey when you're trying to figure out if you're on the right path. Sometimes you need somebody to say, yeah, you are, you're on it. And I've been grateful to do that for some people in my own life now to say like, yeah, you got a voice, you have something, keep going, keep pushing. Um, So I know what that feels like. And so I was very grateful for
7: that. Hey everyone, Vicki Garcia here. I've been the digital, social, and community manager with the IBI for three years. And I gotta say, I've always looked forward to our podcast seasons because they bring insightful and enriching conversations that can reach you no matter where you may be in life. This year, episode 84, Life on the Streets with Andre D. Wagner, really resonated with me. As someone who enjoys photography, I believe we all need moments of perspective on our journeys, whether that's in your passions or in your hobbies. And I think this episode really highlighted the beauty of having your own unique perspective that's shaped by various experiences that you collect throughout life. It really reminded me to appreciate the uniqueness of my point of view and inspired by this i've picked up my camera and started exploring more i hope this episode inspires you to do something meaningful for yourself as well enjoy
9: it's almost like let the world inform it and this this other thing this unconscious thing inform and like that keeps like bringing me to new places unknown territories new possibilities so instead of going out into there, being like, "Oh, I know everything," I'm like, "I don't know shit. I don't know nothing. The only thing I know is this camera and these settings. Like, but everything else, you know." And I think, especially like as a street photographer, but making photographs any kind of way, I think, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to keep shifting and molding, and like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I want to absorb and I want to make. I don't want to just like I feel like as soon as you think you know too much, you stop seeing. You know what I mean? I re- I think I remember the early quote of Henry Cartier-Bresson, and he's a photographer. I mean, this photographer he traveled nonstop, but he said something about like you know people that knows like it was ah, I'm like forgetting the quote, but it's some, it's it's something of the sentiment of like. When you think you know your neighbors, you almost kind of stop like the interest, but then like, but when it, but when you're when it's new, you have all these questions and you see. And so it's almost just taking that sensibility, like not acting like I know too much of anything. Because like that's there might be something special around the corner, even and you thought you knew what that corner was gonna be. But if you kind of come into it open, the possibilities stay open. And I think you know, for making photographs as, as obsessively as I was, it was all about like everything being fair game. Like there is no hierarchy, you know what I mean? And I think, I don't know, there's, there's something beautiful in that to me.
0: And like, I mean, you mean New York Times, W Magazine, like, you know, the publication list goes on and on from like an editorial perspective. So, you know, so in some of like these even like commissioned works, like what is your process?
9: I mean I think I've learned to just bring myself like to be as authentic Andre Wagner as I can be, you know. I think um that's when I feel most alive. That's when I feel like I can truly connect with people. That's when I feel like I make real connections, you know. I think early on man, I really struggle with kind of showing up as my authentic self because it's like, and you don't even see it because you're just, you're in such a survival mode, you know? It's like when you got to pay bills and get supplies and do whatever, sometimes you can be so deep in that that you don't even, it's almost like a person that has like an alcohol problem. Like Everybody smells it on you. You're the only person that don't realize it. You know what I mean? I think if you're in like a deep survival mode, you don't even realize you're not making It's like, are you going to hire me right now or not? Because if not, I don't got time for this shit. You know what I mean? Instead of being like, well, what are you into? What kind of stories do you guys like to tell? Well, yeah, it's a whole different way of communicating, of, of being. And the latter... You know, is a more productive, is a, is a, is a more genuine way of operating in the world. Like less let alone career, publication, It's just like, how do you want to be in the world? How do you wanna be with our fellow humans? You know what I mean? But like, bro, I was just such in survival mode early on that it was really hard for me to show up as myself. And I think that made it even harder for me without even seeing it, you know? And I don't know, I don't know what happened that made me kind of like shake out of that a little bit. But like, that's one of the things when, when I talk to young photographers, uh, you know, as hard as it can be, because survival mode is real. It's real. When your lights is getting cut off, when you ain't got money for rent, when you got an IOU over here and you don't want to walk down this block because most of might see you like that's a real life experience you know so it's it's sensitive but like I think if you can just like break it up a little bit you know what I mean and not be so bogged down in it but it's hard in a city like New York cuz the whole the city's just you bogged down with energy so then you also going to be bogged down with whatever you personally dealing with you know but something kind of shifted and um, I feel like when it comes to the commission work or and working with like editors and stuff like that, once I was able to kind of like break out of the like the survival mode, everything just got better. I was able to show up for the work better. The the, the connections with people got better. People started calling you back because just like you know what I mean. It's just like that was a big one for me, man. Like the survival mode was not serving me at all. I mean, it was in a way cuz it's like i, I it may I, in a way that's what helped me live a very simple life in the beginning which may, which allowed me to create 99 90% of the day it's like you know what i mean like shit like we out here making this work you know cuz like all this other shit is just getting in the way so in a way it, it can be beautiful too you know it creates this tenacity i'm talking about out on the streets from sun up to sun down I went on a regular day ten rolls by noon. You know what I mean? Like we out here working. Like I, everything has a possibility. You see possibilities in the, the way somebody look over to the side, or the way somebody grabs her hand, or the way somebody struts. Like every it just like everything just becomes so like mm, you know. And in a city where everything is off, it's just like. So, I don't know. It's like a double edged sword or, and how it kind of happened. You know what I mean? Because then, on the flip side, once you're not in survival mode and this, now you got everybody calling, this and that. And next thing you know, you're not on the streets as much. You can't be. <laughs> so, it's like,
0: <laughs> pick your poison. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to kind of. I'm talking a lot. I'm talking oh, too much. Oh, you're good. Bro, what are you talking about? This is an interview. <laughs> oh, come on. Um, but, like, kind of thinking about this idea of like failure. Uh, and even rejection and the role that it plays and has played in your development. You know, so much of this story even began with this kind of, kind of perceived failure in like not showing up for yourself, you know, in basketball. Um, but then also, you know, as you're outside, you know, shooting, shooting, shooting. I know you said previously that you don't shoot people who don't want to be shot, right? Um, and so there's also this constant rejection that you're working with all of the time. What role has like failure outside of the, the motivation part that you mentioned from basketball, but this like constant relationship to rejection that you're dealing with every day? How is that shaping your life and career and, you know, even your point of view? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that's a
9: great question. I think, in a way, it it gives you a lot of like um, humility. You know, it gives you. It, it's it gave me. I don't know. It's almost like it almost kind of like even the playing field in, in your way of seeing and living in a way. You know, because it's it's like I would be the same. I, mean, I have one like kind of like office job when I'm. In New York, and like I remember, like certain experiences where it's like you're in there working. It's like I could be on the on the elevator talking to the CEO, and then I'm in the bathroom talking to the custodian and the janitor, and then I'm leaving and I'm talking to the people at the front desk, and then you're on the subway and you're talking to homeless people. It, I think. Like, when you're met with, like, or I don't know, this constant, like, I don't know, failure. I know a lot of people don't like this word, but, like, I think it just makes you feel really human. It makes you see in a different kind of way. And, like, I don't know, for me personally, I think it, it just, it and it goes back to the social work, and it just makes you see everybody and everything kind of, like, in a way, you know, and... And there's the, that I think is really beautiful for me going back to like that non hierarchy, you know what I mean, kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think it totally makes sense. This idea of this const this constant humbling, right? Like that one, it evens the playing field of humanity, right? It like it flattens hierarchy. In many ways, right? Because you could be you could be rejected by it, or You could also be rejected by a sister on the street who's like, "No, I'm good." You know. Um, but it also, um, you know, in what ways do you feel like your career perhaps has played a role in your personal life? And how does one even balance that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean. It's played a huge role, to be honest.
9: I mean, I think, especially, you know, you got to do like, I got 11 years of working on the streets of New York, and that's like very consuming, you know? And I mean, I've had, to, I've made tons of sacrifices just to pursue what I've wanted to pursue, you know? So it's like, whether it's like, you know, not having like, just kind of finances in a a certain type of way because you just want to be out making work, not going to parties, you know.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Dario, the founder and creative director of the Institute of Black Imagination. One of my favorite episodes from 2023 is episode 64, The Power of Community with Robert Battle the Artistic Director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. This episode for me truly speaks to the power of community and more specifically, the power of Black women to lift us up, hold us to our best selves, and see the best in us, even when we struggle to see it ourselves. I hope you enjoy. At the time when
3: Mr. Ailey started, there were all of these dance companies and there was not a modern dance repertory company
0: Hmm. that
3: was alvin ailey's vision now you see everybody's a repertory company (laughs) but what distinguishes ailey and how do you express that to an individual donor and to you know so there's just so much that you're you're contextualizing and thinking about and constantly, you know, I don't have the nine to five mentality, you know, somewhere in me, I'm always worrying or thinking or having ideas or, Oh, maybe we should do that. and It's it's constant, but you know, it's a wonderful labor of love, but it's a gift. It's a gift. And it's not always light. Sometimes holding it, it can be heavy. Mm. But I get to hold it, mm. even if just for a little while. And then you pass it on, and it carries forward. I mean, it's it's amazing that this little bow-legged, big-headed kid who was, uh, I, you know, I was, when I was uh, born, you know, I was the youngest of uh, two brothers, two sisters- who had to go to foster care because my birth mother was not in a position where she could take care of them. Um, And when I was born, my great aunt and uncle just happened to come over and visit her. There I was in a diaper, you know, uh, as my grandfather would say, my great uncle, no bigger than a loaf of bread. (laughs) And they said to my birth mother, let us take this child and raise him. Let us take this child and raise him. You know, you need the help. Let us do it. And they say they spent the whole day talking about it. And she finally let me go. And they took me in. They were already in their probably 70s, you know. And here they are with this kid. Their kids are grown, living in Liberty City and, you know, and the rest. And got me the braces for my leg. All of that happened. It just, and I don't know how I got there in terms of what I'm talking about, but there is something in me that has a different sense of what community means because of that. Mm -hmm. A different sense of what family means. Mm -hmm. A a sort of awareness, Mm -hmm. right? A kind of... um what would you call it? I think it's what makes me an empath, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was a part of me that, if I look deep inside, didn't know if I belonged. Right? When you think about it, because other kids, you know, there's their mom and there's their dad. I mean, you know what I mean? Or something of that. And so when I would tell my stories, like, well, my great uncle, and then this is my cousin, who's my, like, there was this sense of me that didn't feel I belonged. And that's why also I was quiet. Mm. Right? Sort of because what if, you know, they say, get out, <laughs> you don't belong. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's all those things, right? So I think that sense of finding people, being able to. Be empathic and know this teacher has something to tell me that I don't know. So I've always been able to find the people, right? My piano teacher, um, and I say all this because, in some ways, Ailey is a microcosm of my life growing up. Growing up. And I, I always have to tell this story. I'll try to be as, as uh, concise as I can. So I had a piano teacher, Miss Mune—not Miss mune uh, Miss Heard, Miss Juanita Heard, black woman, you know. Uh, you know, sort of big, bolsters type person. She wore these scarves, you know, elegant, you know. <laughs> she was sort of in her era and not, you know, like she was in this era but not of it. She smoked these little tiny cigarettes, you know, and she'd come over to teach me my piano lessons <laughs> with a cigarette in hand, you know. And I was like seven or eight, you know. E, E. No, no, no. E. Mm. <laughs> yes. A whole It was a whole character. I was so shy. So when she would raise her voice or push my fingers, or skinny fingers, I would get teary-eyed and we'd have to stop the lesson and she'd have to come back next week because, mm. you know, cause I was too emotional. <laughs> it was sick right. Years later, I went to dance, you know, I stopped studying piano, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at Juilliard, you know, I'm, I'm really forging ahead and I came home to visit you know, for whatever holiday or whatever. And my mother said, you know, because I hadn't seen Miss Hurd in years, she said, you know, someone told me that they saw that she has cancer and that she's very ill. Um, So I decided to get in touch with her. And the first thing she said to me, and there's a lesson in this, is, oh, can you come tomorrow whenever... And wash my windows on her house outside. I'm like, I have a full scholarship to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> Washing their windows. Oh, well, doing, do you know, but that was the first thing. She didn't say, How's Juilliard going? All that stuff. Wash my windows. Uh, and further insult, I won't be there, but there'll be a bucket outside and a rag. And so I go. I've never washed windows outside. I mean, you know, I was kind of a little, you know. So I'm doing whatever I can do. Finally, a husband pulls up. She gets out of the back of the car. Now this boisterous person that I was so afraid of in terms of her presence was because of cancer. Um, At this late stage, she was about this big and I was still young enough to not have witnessed that before. Mm. And it, it frightened me, quite frankly. And I remember I tried to fix my face, I'm sure, so that you know how you do. You don't want people in. There. And she got out of the car. She looked at me. She said, boy, you don't have time to be looking at me. It's almost dark and you haven't finished these windows. I'm not going to pay you unless you finish these windows. That was it. She went in the house. Imagine that. <laughs> so I, I keep doing the windows. And I finished and she gave me a couple of dollars. And, you know, she probably asked me about how Juilliard was going at that point. A little conversation went home. So this became our cadence, right? When I was home, I would drive her to the bank. I would do all these things. She could hold on to my arm. She did not want people to know that it was hard for her to walk, you know. So she refused to use the cane. So you hold her arm as if we're just walking and talking. And when people would see her in the community who knew her, hi, Miss Heard. And she's like, how are you doing? I don't have time to talk now. I got to get to the bank. She just didn't let you focus on that, you know. One time I came to pick her up and again, falling, right? She opened the front door and somehow she flung around and went flying to the ground, still holding the door. It it was like a giant falling to me. I help her up. She's like, all right, go ahead. Open the car door. We have to go. We're, we're late. We got to get over to this. Said nothing about it. Okay. Then she calls me up one day. She says, "I want to go to J.C. Penney's or wherever to be shopping." She has, and at this point, she has to lean on things and stop and, and catch her breath. And she's really, and she has me try on all these suits. And every suit I tried on, she said, "Oh, that's a handsome suit. Let's get it. Let's get it." It's so about five suits. I take her home. You know, boom. I thank her. I go home, I show my mother. She called Ms. Hurd. She's like, Ms. Hurd, that was so generous, but why did you buy him five suits? She said, someday that boy is going to be meeting kings and queens and presidents, and he's going to need a suit. Fast forward now. Years later, I'm artistic director of Alvin Ailey. First black president, President Obama, the White House gets in touch with me. They didn't call anybody else, <laughs> me, and asked if I would accept the presidential award, the Presidential Medal of, uh, Medal of Freedom, posthumously, the highest civilian honor, posthumously for Alvin Ailey himself. And when I Got on that dais with Judith Jamison sitting in the front row with, you know, Masazumi Chaya. I'm sitting up there, and this other plethora of celebrities, Meryl Streep, and all of these people who are getting it for themselves. But I was the first up because it's Alvin Ely. And I'm standing in this suit with President Obama, the first Black president, this kid. I mean, I started to cry. And I think he sensed the sadness and he took his arm. If you watch it on a, some kind of video, you can find it on YouTube. I think he just patted me on the back. But he knew the gravity of what I was feeling.
0: Thank you all so much for joining us today on this special edition and our last episode of the season. We'll be returning at the top of the year with semester six, and it's going to be killer. For those of you in the gospel tradition, one would say every round goes higher and higher. Oh, and guess what? Also new in 2024, we will be opening our first physical location in New York City. Finally, you'll have access to our archive of over 2,000 books, performances, and public programs, and some of the dopest designers you may not yet be familiar with. Yet, being the operative word, we got you. Stay in the know by signing up for our newsletter linked down in the show notes. And visit us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And tell us what world you imagine for the future. And be sure to check out our portal to Black Thought from throughout the diaspora over at blackimagination.com. From all of us at the Institute of Black Imagination, we wish you a safe and wonder-filled 2024. Stay curious and keep dreaming.